Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events and emerge triumphantly. They're people just like you and me. And they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Well, hello there, and welcome to another Mission Unstoppable. Today is no exception, another great show on the works. We are going to meet a woman who has showed such bravery, grit, and faith to fight for herself. Not only did she have the courage to escape a violent polygamous cult at the tender age of 13, but she overcame fear to let go of her past and find her future. Anna LeBaron is one of more than 50 children of the infamous polygamist cult leader, Irva LeBaron, who endured throughout her childhood abandonment, horrific living conditions, child labor, and sexual grooming. Today, Anna is a gifted communicator, a personal growth activist. She's a coach, and she's passionate about helping others find their freedom and overcome obstacles in their lives. And she's a mom of five grown children. Let's welcome Anna LeBaron to the show. Hi, Anna. Welcome. Hi, Frankie. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you know, I I am so pleased that you're here. And let me just say what an incredible book you have. Uh, I think it it comes out on the 21st officially, but Mm -hmm. um, it went out to to people like myself and it's just so so well written and and just so inspirational. I think so many people, whether they've been in a cult or or not, are going to get a lot of help from reading your book. So, you know, even, you know, issues with mothers and all kinds of things, it's all in there. So it's going to be perfect. People are going to really enjoy reading it. I know that. I agree. Um, Anyone, Anyone that's experienced any kind of trauma Mm-hmm. Or any kind of abuse, we'll we'll find some hope in there. I was looking at at your at the testimonials on your Amazon page, and there's okay. one uh, from your aunt. Yeah, and I, I'm just going to read it because I think it's it's kind of poignant. She she said the polygamous daughter is a heart wrenching account of my niece Anna's extreme neglect, of fear, and abuse inflicted by the very ones meant to protect her. Readers will be astonished by her powerful testimony of surviving danger and terror while growing up in the cult of her infamous father, Ervil LeBaron. And this account of Anna's resilient spirit, strength, and courage brings hope to others, many of whom through fear have remained silent for too long. And that was written by Irene Spencer, and she's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Shattered Dreams, My Life as a Polygamous Wife. Now, it's interesting to me, and I'm not going to spend too much time on her, but it's interesting. Irene was married to your father's brother, Verlin LeBaron. Uh, She came to be his second wife. He was also a polygamist. And when the government raided her, um, their polygamist village, I guess, in Arizona, the family fled to Mexico. And they lived in squalor and desolate conditions there. Uh, and, And so she understands well what, you know, you went through and what she went through to take her and her children to, to leave her situation. And I find it interesting that in both of your cases, both brothers went to Mexico. And I was interested to understand, you know, how did he reach out to these Mexicans and bring them into the faith? I don't think he spoke Spanish, did he? My father was born in Mexico and spoke fluent Spanish. Oh, he did. Okay. 
So I was born in Mexico as well in the colony that was founded by a great-great-grandfather. Okay. It was called Colonia Lebaron, which is the Lebaron colony in Spanish. Ah. And, and the, the pe- there are people still there that, um, that still live and colonize that, that place in Mexico, that little section of land. And, and, and so it was that's a where I was born. village as well? It's a it's a colony and it's yes they there's not a lot of people live still there that practice polygamy but there are still some. So your grandfather was also polygamist. Yes, my okay. my fa- my family history goes back to um, Benjamin F. Johnson, who was a close confidant of Joseph Smith. Oh wow, wow! That I, I, so I came from a long lineage of um, people that practiced polygamy. Right, yes. because of the teachings of Joseph Smith. You know, um, I'm, I'm going to throw something out here. My my husband was raised Mormon, and he today feels that, and he wasn't in a fundamentalist, uh, just regular regular right. old Mormon, um, but he felt that he had been lied to his entire life. He felt cheated by his faith in some ways because of how much he missed growing up. And I wonder how how you might respond to that. I, I feel like it's important to differentiate between the fundamentalist mm-hmm. teachings of Joseph Smith and the faith and practices that he taught people for, from the modern-day LDS. Mm-hmm. Um, just because the modern-day LDS church disavowed polygamy in 1890. Right. Yes, However, yeah. be, because of my dad's practices and him following the teachings, the original teachings of Joseph Smith— I do feel like I was robbed mm-hmm. of a childhood of of a normalcy and being able to be raised in a home with a father and a mother with some stability and roots. I was robbed. Yeah, you were robbed. So what do you, what do you you know you've written this this book. It was the t- I guess the time is right for you now to have this out in mm-hmm. the world. What do you hope for for your story? What do you hope for this book? I hope that by other people being able to read my story, that they will be able to find hope for any kind of uh, traumatic experiences that they might have uh, gone through as children or even teenagers or adults, and courage to um, kind of find the way, the path for them for healing and wholeness and the aliveness that Christ died to give us. Mm-hmm. He said, not just life, but abundant life. And my experience growing up in that environment stifled my, my emotional expression. It, mm-hmm. it caused me to have to shut down my emotionally in order to just cope and survive. And so part of my healing process was learning how to express emotion in a healthy way, in the full range of human emotion, including grief and joy which had been stifled before. Well, let's, let's tell folks a little bit about, you know, what you did go through because you were a young child and, and you moved frequently. You were mm-hmm. never sure if you were going to stay in any place. You left in the middle of the night often mm-hmm. and you had, you know, those moments where you have to grab the things that are most important to you because we're gone. Right. And, and so you didn't have too many attachments to things. Correct. Or if you did have attachments to things, you were going to be disappointed because you never got to keep them. So I, I'm assuming that you you weren't allowed to talk back to mom 
No, my mom was pretty strict and, you know, we, we had a healthy fear of um, any kind of shenanigans involving back talk or, you know, the ones that did got spankings. They, they did believe in corporal punishment and we did get spanked. So um, I had a very healthy fear of, you know, being spanked. And so I was very, I was a pretty compliant child. Well, you, I think you said that um, in the book that, you, you know, you, your bed was a foam mattress on the ground. Like that's, this is how you lived, rolled it up and gone. Right. Well, that's so, when we lived in Mexico. In Mexico. Other times okay. it was just grab a blanket from the pile in the corner and find a spot on the living room floor to wow. make, make yourself a little spot and curl up next to your sister, whoever. So at any given I mean, time, how many, not the Mexico times, but in, when you were living with your mom, how many children and or wives would be in a house with you? Generally, um, two or more of the wives would share a home with all of their children. Um, so sometimes up to 20 people would share a, you know, traditional three-bedroom home designed for a family of four. And my mother, in addition to raising her own children, was also uh, raising the children of one of my dad's wives that had gone to jail Mm-hmm. And what, another one of my dad's wives that had died of cancer. Oh, wow. And so my mom always had quite a few children to take care of and look after and feed and clothe. So her, her, um, her resources were limited and her time was very limited as well because she normally worked full time outside the home. But you're always happy to see your mom. Always happy to see my mom. Always happy to see her. And you saw your father infrequently. I can count on one hand the times that I spent in the same room as my father and twice that I remember having a conversation with him. And what what did, I mean, little girls like their daddies, little girls, you know, look up to dad. And so what did that do to you as a, as a woman, as a, as a young girl that, you know, you didn't have time with dad? Well, regardless of who he was, you know, right, right. We, um, I was raised essentially fatherless. Mm -hmm. And so that left some gaping wounds that needed to be filled, needed to be healed. And I wasn't able to pursue that kind of healing as a child. And so it, in my adulthood, I pressed in and found ways to connect with a heavenly father that helped me kind of uh, put a salve on those wounds that was mm-hmm. actually healing. And, and today I do have what I'm calling a well-fathered heart. Oh, that's nice. That's a great way to put it. Because it's, I've had that, those experiences with my Heavenly Father now that are real and personal and, and palpable. Mm-hmm. You sound like um, Rochelle Decker. She talks like that, too. <laughs> Another author. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if, you, if you know Rochelle or not, but, yeah, she, she's... I don't she know talks. her personally. So. Yeah, it's, that's interesting. So um, I just want folks to understand that your dad was pursued by the FBI. Yeah. The children were... I, I just missed that there, Ben, so i got to go back and get that. How many seconds are we away here? Oh, a minute away. Um, were, were pursued by the FBI, and the children were taught 
basically no comment. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's that was your standard reply. And when we come back from our break, I want to talk um, just briefly about why your father was being pursued by the FBI and what what his cult was was known for. And then we will move on to um, the rest of the rest of your life. We'll get over that. (laughs) We'll move on to to the rest of your life and how you came to be this amazing woman that you are today. So don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. We will be back very soon with Anna LeBaron, who wrote The Polygamous Daughter, a fantastic autobiography, really, of of her life growing up um, through hardship and and all kinds of uh, horrific things to become an amazing woman today. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. The League of Women Voters reminds you that on Election Day, we are all equal. Please join your friends and neighbors by registering to vote and going to the polls November 8th. Visit www.vote411.org to find out who will be on your ballot and how the voting process works in your community. This election is about our future. And we all need to weigh in. Reaching out from the heartland of the United States with quality programming, this is Toginet Radio. It's marching down the curve. Got a lead foot? According to state troopers, here's what not to do when you get pulled over. Don't be a lachrymist and start crying right away. It doesn't help. But if you're under 20, crying won't be held against you. Don't ask for a break. And don't yell or start any argy-bargy. And one trooper said, if they're going to flirt with me to get out of a ticket, it would probably insult my intelligence. But unfortunately, I don't get hit on all that often. So flirting or being a gill flirt won't work. Did you know that 15% of all drivers get 76% of all traffic tickets? And the odds of winning if you challenge a traffic ticket in court are 1 in 3. So what should you do when you get pulled over for speeding? Be courteous to the officer and most of all, be honest. I'm Carolyn Davidson and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Okay, and we're back, and we are back with Anna LeBarn, <laughs> because she told me that I pronounced her name incorrectly, and as we know, you know, our name is one of the most important things that we have, and it's always nice to be uh, spoken about correctly. So Anna is with us today. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. So Anna, when you were, um, there came a time when your mom had to leave, and you had to go to Mexico, and you stayed with another family. Uh, without your mom being there for almost a year, I think. Is that yes, correct? That is, that is correct. And this family, um, husband and wife, wife wasn't too thrilled to have you, although they were followers of your father's mm-hmm. cult. And they um, they sent you out to work every day. They sent you out with, what, cake or something? You had to go out and sell slices of cake that she made? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, because I was blonde and, you know, fair skinned, I was kind of an anomaly in the heart of Mexico and Veracruz where we lived. And so I would go door to door with a plate, a platter with a cake on it that had been sliced up. And 
I would sell these slices of cake, you know, a few pesos each and, you know, one slice at a time, they would need to bring a plate and something to, you know, serve the piece of cake to themselves, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then we would also paint rocks and I would go door to door selling them as quote paperweights. And uh-huh. these, these people were probably just as impoverished as we were. Yeah. For thinking- these little, you know, luxuries any more than we could. And yet because of, you know, I was, you know, blonde hair and, you know, my looks, I was being exploited. My looks were being exploited yes. for that purpose. I couldn't even imagine them buying stuff from you. <laughs> I'm like nine years old and super skinny because I was very ill. Cause in Mexico you drank the water. You, yes. You know, my body wasn't used to that. And so I was very ill almost the entire time I lived there for over, for almost a year. And, you know, it was, it was. But you've been plagued with stomach problems. Yes. Yeah. Psychologically too, because of the stress on your body and and the stress of never knowing, being in fear. Anxiety, anxiety in my gut, you know, it kind of evidences itself in that stomach area with, you know, the tightening of that. So yes, I, that, that began when I was probably seven or eight years old, the first time my mom left us and I was aware that she was leaving and I knew she would be gone a while. Mm-hmm. So that anxiety has been a part of my life until very recently when I was able to get help for that. It's interesting that um, the kids were happy to, you, you were happy to see your mom show up again, even knowing that she would go again. Mm-hmm. And leave you. And did you ever have ill thoughts towards her when you were young? No. You, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't. I didn't have the the capacity or the knowledge or the emotional wherewithal to be able to understand what was happening. I just. I had. I was emotionally attached to my mom, mm-hmm. and that's why anytime she would come back, it would be an emotional experience, and grief would be expressed you know, that she was gone. And then the reunions were always sweet. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's part of the history with my mom that is so complex. There was good times though. Good times. You guys went dumpster diving. What did you call that? (laughs) (laughs) We called it gardening because we were looking for, you know, discarded produce, Uh vegetables that, you know, you could cut off the little, parts that were, you know, bruised or not quite fresh anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and you could actually give yourself, you know, of, um, nutrition. My mom supplemented our nutritional needs with dumpster diving. And I actually was one of the ones that would get put in there because I was small enough to be lifted up into the dumpster, but old enough to know what to look for and how to search. And so I got to experience that as a nine and 10, 11 year old girl. And, but the clothing was, was the most fun. <laughs> what did you guys yes. call that? <laughs> uh, we called it gift boxing. Gift boxing. I love these and terms. These we, are great. <laughs> euphemisms were really helpful to where others, outsiders didn't know what you were talking about. Right. So we would get, I would get put into the, the Goodwill box. You back in the day, you know, late seventies when this was happening, um, they didn't have the types of containers that you can't reach in and grab stuff mm-hmm. out. Well, 
I would get actually put inside of it and I would hand the bags out and knew enough and would, was told to make sure and leave enough in there that I could step up on it to be able to climb back out. And God forbid somebody showed up, you knew that you had no. to stay there until mom could come back and people had right. left the area. Right. Yeah. So was that scary or fun? It, it never happened. She never oh, had a okay. way. But I did know that it was a possibility and I was, you know, taught not to panic if it happened and that they would come back and that I wouldn't be left there, you know, but we couldn't get caught taking from the Goodwill boxes. Right. Yeah. But that, you know, we would take the bags home and, you know. Although when you think about it, I mean, it was really people like you who really were their customers who needed it. <laughs> but we couldn't even afford to shop inside the thrift store. Yeah. Except on very rare occasions. And now, so, y- you guys, your mom had had a job. Um, you often worked in like a factory or did kind of factory work that, it, but it was it was owned by your family, or our was family. It? Our family traditionally um, did used appliances. Um, mm, right. The, the, the men and the boys were taught how to repair them. And the girls and the women were taught to how to clean, clean them, them mm-hmm. and, and were put on the sales floor. If you were good at sales as a girl, you would be put on the sales floor. And so um, that's what I grew up doing was working in a appliance warehouse, mm-hmm. used appliances, you know, scrubbing hard water off of washers with muriatic acid as a kid, you know? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it was, um, it, there was, there was nothing about it that should have been a part of any child's experiences. Exactly. And, I mean, talk and, about, they did use you guys as slave labor. They really did. And, yeah. and there, there's an incident in, in, in the book over the summer where, you know, you guys were, the kids were promised mm-hmm. money, like real money, like yeah. to work and work hard. Yeah. Um, and that didn't come to fruition. Right. And, this was a second, I guess, of your father. Your father was in jail at this point, but right. it was his second in command who mm-hmm. was running the, the show and, yes. and told you guys. And his family was, you know, they had a nice home and they had nice clothes. Right. And did you think, why can't I have a nice home and nice clothes? Like, why didn't we, my father, who owned all of this stuff, you know, like, well, we don't have anything. Yeah, we, we were taught to just keep our opinions and our uh, thoughts about any of the injustices that we experienced to ourselves. And to not speak of them, to not talk about them, and to just forget about the fact that they existed and turn a blind eye to what we saw and experienced. And, you know, it was, um, I will say that that experience that left me with just a really bitter taste in my mouth Mm -hmm. about what happened that summer turned out to be the thing that um, caused me to want to leave the cult eventually. Right. And so that experience that was probably, you know, as a kid, I mean, in hindsight, it's probably not the worst thing that could happen to somebody to get promised some money and not have it come to fruition. But as a kid, when I realized and recognized the complete injustice for other people's children being given the things that we were promised and us not receiving them. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be one of the things that drove me to want to run away. And good thing that it did. And good thing that it did. And And so I can 
today be great, find that kind of perspective that allows me to be grateful that it was bad enough that I wanted to leave. If it had been any kind of pleasant, I might not have left. But what about the other, the other children? Like when you were in bed, like, did you chatter like, oh my God, that wasn't fair. Could you do it with each other or just not to mom or? No, we just, we just let it go. Just all let it go. You did not. I mean, you just couldn't. And you you had a, you had a favorite sibling. Yes. My sister, Celia, Mm -hmm. who is, who I'm still close to today. And she helped me with every single chapter in that book to make sure that, you know, it had the right tone and the right perspective and in small details that I'd maybe forgotten. She helped me, you know, include those. So she's, um, She's in the book a lot because we shared a lot of experiences and, um, and she's just, she's been a part of my life, especially as adults, we've shared each other's lives and our children have grown up together and she lives right here in the, you know, DFW Metroplex. So did, did your children know your story when you, when they were younger, did they know it growing up or is this something that you shared recently with them? I, I shielded them from most of the horrific parts of it mm-hmm. as they were growing because no kid should have to carry that weight. Right. Of, you know, what, what I experienced. So I, I waited until they were teenagers. My oldest son was a teenager when we really just dove into the hard parts of it mm-hmm. because he wanted to do a story about his grandfather, Ervil, for his Spanish class in high school about oh. the day of the dead. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's when I really got into the nitty gritty with him. And then after that, it became, you know, easier as each of the kids were much older than um, to begin talking about this. But most of them aren't, weren't aware about some of the things that happened to me until they read the book, which three of them have read it. Um, the other two are saying, We'll we'll do that later, Mom. Whatever. <laughs> wow. And what did the three who read it? What was their thoughts? Um, there were a lot of surprise, and there was even some grief uh, expressed about the things that I went through as mm-hmm. a child and as a teenager. It's and good that so, they can have empathy for you. Yeah. So that yeah. was that was just um, really touching for me. Yes, that, I can imagine that they would have expressed those feelings and. Especially when you weren't able to at their age. Yeah. 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 So that's pretty poignant. Yes. I'm getting emotional just telling you about it. (laughs) Well, we're going to go to commercial break. So it's very shortly so you can recover. Okay. (laughs) But But I think it's great. Being able to express emotion is part of my experience now. And so the fact that I can get all, you know, teary eyed just talking about this it tells me that I'm healthy and whole and healed. There you go. There's a good perspective. So I like that. And it's true. It's, it's so true. So that's, that's pretty cool. We are speaking to Anna LeBaron. We will be back very shortly. So if you want to call us, feel free to do so at 903-587-5887. Give us a call if you want, or you can just listen and hear this incredible life story. Don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. It's Marching Man. 
time your parents or grandparents complain about walking to school uphill both ways, you can tell them about a village in China where getting to school is a real adventure. In the mountainous Sichuan province, children have to get to school from their tiny village of Atular by rappelling, abseiling, and clambering down a 2,500-foot cliff. Using ropes and bamboo ladders to scale this one-half-mile-high brachtumic, the journey is so difficult that the school children ages 6 to 15 only return home every two weeks. What's the word for the fear of heights? Hypsophobia. A new set of steel stairs is now being considered to help make the journey to school safer. By the way, a brachtumic is a hill so steep it hurts the stomach of anyone who tries to climb it. It's marching down. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Word. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Prevention Magazine claims potatoes have been given a bad rap among dieters. They say it's because people tend to consume them in the form of greasy french fries, chips, and buttery mashed potatoes. But potatoes really are a nutritious food when they're prepared the right way. One medium potato has about 150 calories and 5 grams of fiber. It also packs nearly 20% of your daily quota for heart-healthy potassium. So bake, roast, steam, or boil potatoes, and don't lather them up with butter and excessive sour cream or mayonnaise. Skip the fried versions of potato chips and fries. For an even healthier version, choose sweet potatoes that are rich in vitamin A. Not only do they taste delicious, they can also help lower blood pressure naturally. I'm Annette Hammond. If you're a fan of Fitness Minute, like us on Facebook at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond. And we're back. You're listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I am your host, Frankie Picasso. My guest today is Anna LeBaron. Anna was more one of more than 50 children of the infamous polygamist cult leader, Ervil LeBaron, who went to jail um, for murder. Uh, he had, I think, tw- I think there were something like 20 cult members that were murdered before and after his death um, because they left the cult and maybe did something that they weren't supposed to see or do, unfortunately. Um, but you know what? The sins of the father do not reflect on the daughter or the other children. And she is a lovely you. woman <laughs> who, you know, in her own right and had nothing to do with anything. So children are blameless always. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For sure. We were talking about how your children had read your book and, and how they empathized with your story. Not all of them, but the, the ones who had read it did. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that was a beautiful thing that happened there. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, about religion, because you came from a family who had, I hate to use the word, but really bastardized your religion. They, they, they took it to the nth degree and, and changed it so much that, you know, it's, it wasn't recognizable at all anymore as, as a religion, really. Um, so you came from that, and, and you were a follower of Christ. You, you know, that is your passion and, and your belief today. Um, is there a religion that goes with that? Well, I'm, I'm a Christian today, and okay. I consider myself to be a student of the historical man Jesus. Okay. Because who Jesus was and the things that he was about when he was physically here on this mm-hmm. earth, you know, he, his, he left— um, wholeness and healing and, and help for the people around him. Yes. Whereas the, my father, the opposite was true in his wake. He left death and destruction and lives that it, that were shattered. 
by his beliefs and his extreme practice of the the b- beliefs that he held dear. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's quite a contrast in my current faith and um, wanting to um, to have as the expression of my life the things that were important to Jesus, meaning mm-hmm. love, joy, and peace, and kindness. That's what I want the people that I encounter to experience as a result of being you know, anywhere near me or having, you know, finding me on the internet or Mm -hmm. through social media for that to be the expression and what they see and what they feel from having encountered me in any way. When you left, um, when you, when you left home, when you left your, your family, you moved in with, was it a, a half sister? Yes. Okay. My half sister was the one who um, I called when I knew I needed to get out, mm-hmm. and she um, she took me in, and her and her husband uh, finished raising me. And that's when you met your husband. Yes, my in sister. High school. Correct. My sister and her husband they enrolled me in a little Christian school that was just down the road from their home, and that's where I met Jesus and encountered the love and the grace and the kindness that I experienced that really left me um, open to receiving Christ when that opportunity came to me. And so that's, um, I did go there and I graduated from that little Christian school in 1987. And and you really love that school. Um, David is your husband's name. Is that correct? Um, Well, he, in the book, yes, that's who I married. Um, yeah. And so we did have five children together. Um, I, I will say just so that the listener isn't um, mistaken, but, you know, he and I tried for 17 years to make that marriage work, and it mm-hmm. did not work eventually. And so um, he and I were not married when he passed away last year. Um, so my children in the past year lost their father. I'm sorry. I didn't know he passed on. So, because I, I I remember reading, I, I thought I read that you you did have some difficulties, but you had divorced and actually got back together. We did divorce and get back together, and then you know, and then eventually we divorced again, and um, so it was there was it wasn't for a lack of trying. No, we definitely wanted to make that marriage work. And was it just too much history? Both of us, the way I say it is, mm-hmm. we were both very ill-equipped mm-hmm. for um, providing a nurturing place for our marriage and our relationship to grow. And so it was, um, it was difficult. And well, you did a lot of work. I mean, you worked with a therapist for years, years and yes. years. Yes. Did, did he work with a therapist too or no? Um, for part of the time, yes. Okay. And we, had, we did see a marriage counselor and but I think that by the time we reached outside of our marriage for help, it was already enough, a lot, a lot of damage had already been done okay. to the relationship. And so, you know, we, we definitely worked hard at it and weren't able to put the pieces back together when it became, when it became time to sure. get that help and that outside help was coming in, um, it was well, I'm sorry for the loss. Yeah. Um, but 
some of your family members have put out there that um, all of this was possible because mental illness ran through the family. And if only they had had medication, that they probably wouldn't have done anything like what happened. Well, I mean, nobody can go back and predict what might have happened had mm-hmm. things been different. Um, but there was, you know, you cannot have a topic discussion about my family without talking about mental illness and the professional help that's needed when, when people are struggling mm-hmm. with mental and emotional and psychological difficulties. And my father did have those and needed help. Mm-hmm. However, with some of the struggles that he had, you know, just by definition, those struggles prevent you from asking for help because you yeah. don't feel like you need it. Yeah. And so, so it was, so it's kind of a catch 22, if you will, with him. And he, he died in prison having not received any kind of mental health care. And so one of the things that, that has brought me to the place that I am now today is that I did get help for Mm -hmm. some of the struggles that I was having emotionally and, um, my, the counselor that I was working with, um, talked um, with me about post-traumatic stress and anxiety and depression and those kinds of things that were affecting my life Mm -hmm. and has helped me to get to the other side where I am, where those things aren't the, the controlling forces emotionally for me anymore. Well, it sounds like you're healthy. Well, I am healthy where, um, what she said is, um, let's get you to the point where you're not re-traumatized by telling Mm -hmm. your story because there is, um, an aspect of being public and sharing your story Mm -hmm. that opens you up to, um, to have, to reoccurring difficulties if you haven't healed enough. And even though I've been sharing my story publicly for about a decade now, mm-hmm. um, being able to write the book with all the detail and the nuances and, you know, just, you know, when I go and speak, you give, you know, you're given maybe 25 minutes to, to share this big story. Right. So there's only so much detail you can go into. Well, in a book, that's quite different. And so... So it was a different experience writing the book right. and sharing the real deep emotional stuff that was still there and wanting to be expressed. Um, because when you when you moved in with your sister and her husband Mark, mm-hmm. um, he he, did, he he got inadvertently killed in the shop the day that you're supposed to go in there. Was yes. that is that is that correct? Do I have it right? I read your book about a month ago, so yes. it was, no, no, yeah. that's. I mean, there's a lot in that book, so I (laughs) I have a hard time sometimes remembering all the details, so I don't expect anyone to. (laughs) No, I mean, that was um, that day in in 1988. That was devastating to our entire family, Mm -hmm. the the events of that day, because it wasn't just him. It was Mm -hmm. him, his brother, and my brother, and a little girl that all got killed in three different locations in the state of Texas on the same day at the same time. And they were on a hit list. Yes. My father had left a hit list 
in his prison cell. He had written the hit list in his prison cell when in his mental madness, if you will, he was ordering all his followers to come guns a-blazing to bust him out of jail, which was suicide mission, and everyone knew it. Everyone in their right mind knew it. Right. So when they didn't, he, he left a list, and people began to... Uh, years after he passed, um, several members of our family um, took up the mantle and and began going down that list and killing the people on the list because in their minds they had to do that in order to be in right standing with God to, to get God's blessing. It was a blood blessing. atonement or something. Is that yes, what it was? It's called, it's called blood atonement, okay. and meaning there are some sins that the blood of Christ cannot cover and therefore, you must atone for those sins with your own blood. And so, yes, that was what happened. They were blood atoned, and um, anybody that happened to be a witness was also killed, which is why the little girl passed away. Mm-hmm. And I would have been had I been with Mark that day. Yes. And were you on a, that list? No, I wasn't. And and just. Um, some one of the questions that I get asked a lot is if there's any type of threat on my life for sh- mm-hmm. sharing the story, and just to help your listeners understand that there's no threat. Nobody in our family is is practicing or even believing any mm-hmm. of that um, violent faith that my dad practiced. Nobody right. is today. It's been it was 1988, so yeah, almost. Am I doing the math right? Thirty years. <laughs> yeah. At been least. almost 30 years. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. I would I'm... never have put myself or my children or anybody I loved at risk by sharing this story if there was any possibility of that. Yeah. The the family members, um, I mean, everybody knows the stories. Uh, they weren't, you know, um, nothing was hidden from anybody within, within the, the family. Um, but the sharing of it... I, it must be difficult for many, I would think. We're going to go to commercial break in just a few seconds, but um, I don't know if you want to talk about that when we come back. Oh, what, I can talk about like. it. Okay. Because, um, uh, you know, not everybody wants their story told. Uh, some, some will tell, but uh, maybe they do. I don't know. I'm just assuming that <laughs> there might be some who don't. Uh, That's so we, If they've you know, reached out to you and let you know that, let, let's hear about it. We're going to go okay. to a break. We will be right back with Anna LaBarn and you. So don't go anywhere. <laughs> don't stop. That's right. Don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Don't stop. It's Virgin Did you know one-third of population suffer from bad breath? Several years ago, a New York City doorman was actually suspended from work because people were complaining about his bad breath. Other words for foul-smelling breath are halitosis and ozostomia. So what are common causes of ozostomia? Coffee is a problem because it's very acidic, and bacteria reproduce faster in an acid environment. Candy and gum contain sugar, which is also a problem because sugar feeds the bacteria that cause bad breath. Alcohol is another culprit. What's another name for cheap wine? Plonk, slip-slop, or stinky bus? It's merging 
I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Word. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The holidays are known for being the most stressful time of the whole year. And it's a fact that the best way to relieve stress is to exercise. Even though you have a long shopping list to plod through, that's even more of a reason to hit the gym. After 30 minutes on the treadmill, your mother-in-law's pending visit will not seem so overwhelming. The Christmas cards that you've not yet sent out will not seem like such a big deal. Exercise releases stress in your life and gets the endorphins flowing so that you feel so much better. So during this wonderful but frenzied season, make sure to keep your daily exercise going. Not only will the pressure and tension be easier to handle, you will also have the energy that exercise gives you to be more productive and to get more things done, like shopping, gift wrapping, addressing Christmas cards, decorating, etc. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. And we're back. It's Mission Unstoppable, and we're here with Anna LeBaron and her wonderful story, her tale, The Polygamous Daughter. Her book is coming out March 21st for everyone else, and um, I'm sure you're going to want to run to the bookstores to get this. It is a fantastic read. It is a very good book, uh, full of you know, sadness and wonder and courage and all kinds of things. But definitely, I highly encourage everyone to go out and, and read this book because it is a really good book um, in and of itself. Anna, you know, you've been so brave to tell the story. And when we went to break, I asked you if there's family members who weren't ready to share the story and if they reached out to you. Well, I, I did my best when I was writing to tell only my story because other people have theirs to tell. And when they're ready, they should be able to tell their own story. Mm-hmm. I, I did my best to um, protect the privacy of people that are still wanting their privacy. Um, I've, you know, changed names in the book, you know, to help facilitate that mm-hmm. for those who still want their privacy and, and, and I'm being as respectful as I can of that. However, our family story is, has made national media a number of times. And, you know, you just Google my father's name and you can read anything you want about my family. And right. so it's not like, it's not like a national secret that I'm divulging here. But I, I did my best to tell my story so that others could tell theirs when they're ready to. There is a part in the book, near the end of the book, you, um, you go and you visit your father's grave. That was the third mm-hmm. time you visit his grave. Mm-hmm. And what was different about the third time? Well, the, the first time was when we buried him. And I was um, probably 12 years old or 11. And... You know, I had natural emotion just being around people that were in grief, but I didn't have a connection with him to make my grief personal and real Mm -hmm. for me as far as grieving the death of a father. So, so that was uh, that first time. And then again, I went back, you know, many, many decades later and, and visited his gravesite and there was just not a lot of emotion there. I thought I would feel something or, you know, and that just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so the third time I ended up, I don't, I don't want to give away too much to, no. to the listeners because if they decide to read it, this is um, one of the, you know, critical moments, I would say. But I ended up there inadvertently with my friend's mother. Mm-hmm. 
We can leave and, it there. Okay. <laughs> and, we can leave it there. Well, I will say that, you know, what, some of the, the things that happened and the things that she said to me that day were, were very life-changing for me. And so, so that's, that's why I don't want to give away too much. Sure. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. You totally transformed your life. I mean, <laughs> you really did that. You did an incredible job in that, you know, I know how much work that took. Yes. Can you, tell, was, tell, was, tell the people listening how much work that took. <laughs> well, I, I will say that I began my healing journey in 1995 when a friend of mine noticed a struggle that I was having um, after some events that occurred and my reaction to them in response to them, she knew I needed help. So she offered to make me an appointment with a lay ministry counselor at her church. And then she offered to either drive me or babysit my kids. She facilitated this, um, meet, this meeting with me and the lay ministry counselor and upon, you know, meeting with her and kind of sharing with her in a span of an hour as much as I could about my story, she very wisely referred me to a professional counselor. And that began my five-year journey of healing with the help of a professional counselor. But it didn't stop there. I have been pursuing wholeness and healing through professional counseling, through lay ministry activities in church, through small groups, through um, parachurch organizations, you know, like, you know, the Walk to Emmaus or Celebrate Recovery, those types of, I've just pressed in and availed myself of any kind of help I could get. And as in most recently, for the past, you know, 10 years or so, 11 years, I've been a part of a, uh, a program at our church called Freedom Ministry that has really shaped and helped form my spiritual walk with God and allowed me to heal even more than I'd already done and connect with God as my heavenly father, as I was talking about earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. So, right, because so, you don't feel void of a father because you have a heavenly father. Yes. Yes. And so... My healing journey has been decades long. Right. And I and, have passed in more than anybody I know. And like, that is it, why you were unstoppable. <laughs> yeah. It took me being willing to ask for help mm-hmm. and to press in and to receive help when it came to me. And I just kept following the path that I was on. And every time the light would be shown a little step ahead of me, I would take that step. And so it didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen quickly. It happened one step at a time as, as God shown, you know, put light on the path in front of me, and I would take that step. You know, you were really fortunate to have such a good friend and, and good friends that you did have in school. You were mm-hmm. in a deep depression, and you weren't coming out of it. And yeah. if they hadn't forced your hand, who knows right. what would have happened to you. Right. And, well, and that, that, that was in, in, when I was in college right. in 1989. Yeah. And, and I just want to say that if anybody listening has know somebody like that who is in such a deep depression and you think, oh, I'll just leave them alone. Don't right. leave them alone. Yeah, don't leave them alone. You know, show up and, and be there with them and walk this path with them so they know they're not alone. And then 
help facilitate them getting whatever help they're willing to receive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that just means sitting across from them over a cup of coffee and, and hearing their stories that can, that can help lead them down the path to where they're willing to share with a, maybe a professional or a lay ministry counselor or somebody else that you can help facilitate that for a friend. If you know somebody that's in need like that. Okay, I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room. Mom. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You you took the book when it was complete to your mom. Well, actually, even before it was complete, you let her read p- yeah. parts of it, I think. Right. Um, because, you know, you love your mom, but at the same time, mom was responsible for a lot of this stuff, and how come she didn't help, and how come she wasn't strong enough to mm-hmm. save you and the rest right. of the kids? So there must be a bit of that. And I'm sure I'm, I know that you did forgive your mom. Um, talk about that briefly. Well, I, I have a very conflicting relationship with my, not con- conflicting feelings mm-hmm. in the relationship with my mom, because my mom still believes in, and uh, she still believes in polygamy okay. and she lives in a community of people that still practice it. Mm-hmm. And so um, the community that she lives in is not violent and they're allowed to have contact with outsiders and, you know, they're, they're allowed to leave if they want to with no harm, you know, to be done to them if they decide that that group's not for them. And so is she married? No, she's, um, she's a, she's a widow. So she had been married to the leader of that group, but he passed away and she has not remarried since then. And so she's 85 years old. Okay. And so, like you said, when I finished writing the manuscript and turned it into the publisher, I told her I would get on a plane and come visit her. And I did. And she didn't know a lot of the things that had happened to me. And the last thing I wanted was for her to read about these things by herself. Mm-hmm. And so I took the manuscript and went and what and was a surprise her. for her? Almost all of it. Really? She, what did she I mean, think happened to her kids while she was gone for a year at a time? Well, I don't think she understood the magnitude of how it affected us. Okay. And, and you know, you, most kids that are experiencing abuse don't tell their parents. Right. So, so that part was probably co- a common thing for most people, not just people that are experiencing or grow up in polygamy. And so... She was surprised by a lot of the things that I mention and talk about and describe in the book just because we didn't have the kind of relationship where I could just go and bear my soul to her. Right. And so there were a lot of tears and a lot of sadness and a lot of grief on both of our parts. And did it help heal your relationship? It, it gave us... Um, in a way? A, I think it helped her gain some understanding about where I am now in my life and, and the choices that I've made in my life, um, how I live my life now, it gave her a better understanding of those things. And, and she's supportive of me telling my story. It's just, um, she has a different perspective and a and different faith practice than mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to ag- agree to disagree. Right. <laughs> And yeah, it's interesting because I mean, even her part in it where, you know, you were child labor with her cleaning those 
those stoves and washers right. and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never saw that as anything wrong. Well, she does see it now. Okay. It, she does see it now and she acknowledges that it was wrong. Um, and so there's always a little bit of um, tension in our relationship just because of her continued belief in the practice yeah. of polygamy that affected my life so negatively. Yeah. But I still feel tenderly towards her. She's well, my mother she's and that mom. won't, that won't ever stop. Mm-hmm. And, and I have forgiven her and I've worked through a lot of that anger that's pressed down and, you know, and then eventually as you grow and mature and you're able to find expression of that, mm-hmm. that in healthy ways, it, I've been able to work through it and come to the place of peace and forgiveness and, and to where what's left is just tenderness towards her. Oh, that's great. What, um, of the 50 brothers and sisters out there, how many are you still in touch with? Probably the majority of them, all of them that want to be in touch with me through, you know, the, the magic of Facebook and social right. media, um, it allows us to be connected. And so that's one of my favorite things to talk about is just how proud I am of my family for how much we've overcome and for the lives that we've now created for ourselves and the ways that we are able to interact now that's healthy and good and creating fun memories with each other. Well, that's a great place to end the show on. Anna LeBaron, give us your, your web address if folks want to reach you. AnnaLeBaron.com, A-N-N-A-L-E-B-A-R-O-N. And there you go, folks. The Polygamous Daughter, out March 21st. I think you can, you can get it on Amazon right now. But um, thank you so oh. much for joining us and for sharing your story with us today. So You're appreciate very you. welcome. Thank you. Stop. Stories of people who, when the odds were against them, turned defeat into victory. You've been listening to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. See you next time, and always remember... Don't, 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 don't stop.